listen, good morning. We are in 1 Samuel. Now, we are finishing 1 Samuel today. Now, keep in mind, this was one book. First and Second Samuel was one book. Um, most likely, it was just one scroll, about 32 feet long, ran out of space, started a new scroll, Second Samuel. Um, that's probably the idea. Or the idea, too, is like First Samuel really follows and tracks with Samuel and King Saul. Obviously, David's in there. But Second Samuel, we see David's kingdom really come to fruition. So 2 Samuel, we're going to see in 2 Samuel 1, David hears about Saul's death, and then we see like really the start of David's kingdom. That's 2 Samuel. That's more the focus on David and his kingdom. So we're finishing 1 Samuel. Can you guys believe it? It's only been like a couple of weeks, right? Um, But we're working our way through this, and here's kind of the hope for us. Um, There's something sweet about just going through books maybe maybe we wouldn't normally go through, uh, about getting familiar with our history. The idea of the people wanting a king, longing for a king, longing to be like the other nations, and God gave them a king that they wanted, and he failed epically, and that's Saul. And then God's going to be like, I'm going to raise up a king that I have in mind, a man after my own heart. We saw that very early in 1 Samuel. God's like, I want a king after my own heart, and that's fulfilled in David. And there's this idea for us, we see like almost a battle of the kingdoms. We're almost getting like a picture of, in a sense, like the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. You kind of have these different um, types or pictures or analogies, I think speaking into something much greater. We see different types of, the, of Jesus in the Old Testament. We also see anti-types of Jesus. In a sense, Saul is like an anti-type of Jesus. And we'll even look at that a little bit today. Uh, but this is the end of Saul's life. We're finishing this book, and this is such a tragic ending. It didn't need to happen that way. The way Saul's life kind of just comes to an end, it's so sad because there was so much hope, and it didn't have to go down that way. And it's sad if you've ever met someone and you, you see their life kind of go down a path, and you're like, it didn't have to happen that way. Maybe someone you love or you care about, and you see them making this bad decision after bad decision, and you're thinking to yourself, it didn't have to end that way. It could, it, they could have done better. It was these small compromises that led to like a catastrophic, catastrophic ending. And that's Saul. King Saul, there's so much hope for him. Like the people are for him. God is for him. And you see this Saul making decisions out of fear, not seeking God, very selfish, very just anti-God in, in so many different ways. And you just see like tragedy after tragedy, and it leads to where we're at today in 1 Samuel. In case you're like, why are we doing 28 and 31? Maybe if you're with us last week, you remember we looked at the story of David. Remember, David was in a bad place in chapter 26 and 27. David's actually working for the enemy. He's working for the Philistines. David might have to go to war with his own people. But in chapter 29, we see that David didn't go to war because they didn't trust David. The Philistines didn't fully trust him. So God spares him. He doesn't go to war with his own people. We saw the drama with David and his wives and the kids being kidnapped. And we saw them rescue them back from the Malachites last week. And we looked at David. Just We talked about last week, in case you're with us, the end of self, beginning of God. David kind of had that, you know what, God? I'm done doing it my way. I'm going to seek you. David was really good at repentance. And Saul wasn't really good at repentance. You know, David made a lot of mistakes. Saul made a lot of mistakes. You, you want to know the difference between them? Repentance. And that's kind of what we're going to see. David knew when to repent. repent. It was a genuine repentance. Saul never had a genuine repentance. Try to kill David. David, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And not really sorry. And the idea was, you see, the difference between these two men really was, was just repentance. Because they're both sinners. Both needed God's grace. But one just knew how to repent. One just knew how to go to God. The other one didn't. And so as we read chapter 28, this is um, an interesting story because Saul's going to seek out a medium. He's about to go to war with the Philistines. He's going to seek out a medium. He's going to speak out this woman who in their mind, she speaks with the dead. And he's thinking, if God's not speaking to me, I'm going to go to her. So he seeks out this woman. Uh, Maybe it's been famously told and and called like the witch of Endor because that's where she's a medium from Endor. There's kind of like different things written about this. The witch of Endor. sounds like a Lord of the Rings, I don't know, movie or title. The witch of Endor. But Saul's going to seek her out, and, and really, that's also like the final, that's like the straw that broke the camel's back. You're going to see it's because he didn't obey God and fulfill, and fulfill his word in 1 Samuel 15 by killing the Amalekites and by going to this woman. It's like it's done. And you're going to kind of see the end of Saul, and I, I'm putting it together with 31 because basically this woman says the next day you're going to die, chapter 31, the next day in war he dies. So I want to read it together, and then we're going to see 2 Samuel 1, David's response to hearing about Saul's death was one of brokenness. He's weeping. He can't believe it. He t- like he's fasting, rips his clothes. Like he's, just, he's heartbroken. A man who tried to kill him over and over and over again. 
He's just heartbroken that his, he was just passing. Like the anointed one has fallen in his mind. David really shows us how to love our enemies well. So the reason why I'm bringing this up today is we're going to do 2831. I'm going to reference 2 Samuel 1. You have homework to read that. We're actually going to pick up next week in 2 Samuel 2 because 2 Samuel 1 is David's response to hear about Saul. So just kind of some homework. Just wanted you guys to know what's going on. So that's what's happening. Um, I just want to pray. This is one of those texts too. I just feel like um, kind of approaching it, praying through it, kind of dealing with the occult um, I just want to just kind of say, Lord, speak and move, and we have a greater spirit. And I just ask that you would speak, God, that you would do something in our hearts. So let's just do that. Let's pray. Father, we just want to say thank you. We thank you so much for your word. It truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And God, um, even these, these stories were written for our benefit, for our learning, for our instruction, so that we may have hope. And God, even someone like Saul, who just didn't finish well, who pursued his own kingdom rather than your kingdom. Help us to learn from this. God, yes, the Davids and the ones who maybe did it right, but God, also those who didn't do it right. Um, We ask that we would just learn, that we'd grow, that we would not assume right away we're, we're not like that, that we would realize our hearts are inclined to seek other outside voices other than you at times. Just help us to learn, God. God, I just ask that you'd bring transformation, that the emphasis would be on you, Jesus, that you'd be seen, you'd be glorified, and we thank you that you are everything we've needed. God, that you are the king that satisfies that need in our lives, that uh, we look to you now and ask that you'd speak and be glorified. In your name, Jesus, amen. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. This is a common phrase. Maybe you've heard it. It's one of those Bible phrases that I hear like people who aren't Christians or they don't know the Bible, they say this. You might hear this, oh, how the mighty have fallen. This is a phrase that's used a lot in a lot of different contexts. It was just funny and ironic to me because I'm not on Twitter often, but I read it this week. I don't know if you've heard of a guy named Jim Cramer. Uh, he hosts a, sh- a show trying to give financial advice called M- Mad Money. He gives terrible advice. For our j- younger generation, you know, there's like an inverse Cramer movement. Um, anyways, I just think it's kind of funny. Basically, whatever he says, do the opposite. That's kind of what... A lot of people say. So if he gives advice on something, like, let's do the opposite and we'll make money that way. So that's kind of the inverse Kramer. Um, anyways, he tweeted something this week. I thought that was really funny. Uh, he cre- tweeted about a company, like an investment banking company called Credit Suisse. I believe that's how you pronounce it. And he said, Credit Suisse, how the mighty have fallen, dot, 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 ouch. I remember reading, like I read that this week, October 3rd. I read that. I'm like, oh my gosh, he used the phrase I've been reading this week. Like, it's so funny to me. But he's like, how the mighty have fallen. And then, of course, as soon as he tweets this, they start going up again. Um, Anyways, when I saw that, I go, man, it's so funny how we, the world has these phrases, but they don't know the origin. They don't know where it comes from. What is this about? The mighty have fallen. He said this in like an ironic way, in a belittling way, how the mighty have fallen. This is something David actually says three times in 2 Samuel 1, not in a bitter way, not an ironic way, but in like in a way of grief. He's looking at Saul's life, Jonathan's life, Saul's sons, who all die on this hill, Mount Gilboa, and David writes kind of a poem to them, about them. And three times in 2 Samuel 1, David writes, how the mighty have fallen. It really is a tragic story, Saul's life. It didn't have to go down this way. It didn't have to be, oh, he could have been, he would have been. It didn't have to end this way. It really is heartbreaking when you see someone you love and care about. Maybe you see the hand of God on them, and then you start seeing selfish decisions, poor decisions. You're like, oh, it didn't have to be this way. It could have been. It would have been. David says three times, how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen. You know, to me, when we're about to read the end of Saul's life and his death and what kind of brought him there. And the verse that just comes to mind over and over again, Romans, or Proverbs 14, 12, you know it. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That is Saul. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You know, there's so many people I love and care for. Maybe you too. You, you get to know them. You, just, you, you start to develop like, oh, they're so cool. I love this about them. But then they begin to kind of ignore the voice of God, ignore the will of God. I'll do it my way. I'll do what I want to do. And there's a, it seems right to them in that moment. But its end is the way of death. And that, that's Saul. It's like, oh, man, Saul, you're so close. How the mighty have fallen. Actually, before Proverbs 14, 12, listen to this, Proverbs 14, 11, I think it summarizes Saul's life as well. He says, the house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Listen to that, the house of the wicked will be overthrown. 
this is the story of Saul. The house of the wicked will be overthrown. The tent of the upright will, will flourish. And you kind of see this with David and Saul. So here's how I actually want to put it. Like, it's weird studying this week and like, I, sometimes you want to be positive, like put a positive spin on it. Kind of can't. You have to kind of like learn from the negative. So uh, here's the three points today as we walk through our text. We're going to see the wicked don't hear from God. Again, remember the, the house of the wicked will be overthrown. The wicked don't hear from God. The wicked don't experience God. And as we read chapter 31, the wicked don't finish well. It doesn't end well. So I just want to walk through this. Let's learn from this. I want to learn from even those who failed. We can't just learn from those who did it right. We have to learn from those who failed. So let's look at Saul's life. Uh, let's go. First Samuel chapter 28, very interesting story. Let's pick up in verse 1. First Samuel 28, verse 1. Uh, again, the wicked don't hear from God. Verse 1, it says, In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know that your servant, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Remember, we've already looked at this, chapter 29, the other kings of the Philistines, they're like, no, David cannot go, he cannot fight with us. But remember, David was about to fight his own people. Pick it back in the verse story, verse 3. So the battle, Philistines versus Saul and the nation of Israel. Verse 3. Now Samuel had died, the great prophet, we read that. Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him. And they buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and camped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I might go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there's a medium at Endor. All right, stay with me. There's a battle about to take place between the Philistines and the nation of Israel. Saul's terrified. He's freaked out. Samuel's dead. He's trying to say the person he would go to normally to say, hey, are we going to do okay here? Are we going to survive? How is this going to play out? Samuel's dead. Now, it does say this. You call this. It's like, well, Samuel or Saul inquired of the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him. What is that about? If you remember, it says he sought the Urim. Do you remember that uh, Saul killed all of the priests? There's only one priest left alive. He took the ephod. The ephod had the Urim and the Thummim on it, and he brought it to David. That was a tool. The ephod was a tool in which the priest would use to kind of hear from God. God, should we do this? Should we not do this? It says he sought the Urim. What does that mean? He sought a counterfeit. It wasn't the real thing. David has the real thing. And I think it's such a, it's such a picture of Saul. He kind of went to different counterfeits. The prophets, he killed the prophets. Uh, there's a prophet with David, the prophet from Gad, if you remember. It's like everything he went to is not working. David has the real thing. He has the real prophet. He has the real Urban Thummim. He can really hear from God. But you're like, is this, this is crazy. Maybe you think this is wrong. He's seeking God. He's not hearing from God. And then what does he do? He turns to a witch, the medium at Endor. Now you're thinking, but Saul sought God. Like, what is up with that? Let me just be really, really clear here. Saul is seeking God, but every time God gave him a word, Saul never obeyed. Every time God spoke, it's not like he listened. Whenever God told him to do something, he would do it partially, not fully. He really wouldn't do it. He would kind of hear or do his own thing. The point is, he might be seeking God, but he's, he hasn't ever obeyed. So why would he start now? It's like, does he really want to know what the Lord has to say? Like, so there's almost this challenge. I, here's what I think. And you're like, I don't know. This is, seems wrong to me. I want to point this out. There's a verse in Psalm 66. I was even reading this week and maybe you know the verse, but Psalm 66 verse 18, David writes, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. He's seeking the Lord on this matter, but in reality, maybe he should be repenting first. And so often we can do this like, God, I need, God, I want, God, will you speak? Will you lead? Will you guide me? And sometimes we go to God, but God's like, actually, you're in a place in life right now where maybe you're going to me for something, but the first prayer you should be making is a prayer of like repentance. Maybe there's still sin regarded in your heart. Maybe you feel like your prayers are going nowhere because you're praying the wrong prayer. Like you're going to God for step two or three, but God's like, step one is just repent, turn from your sin, believe on me, call upon me, then you can hear from me. I mean, there's a warning to husbands. This is terrifying. First Peter 3, 7, if you know, he's like, husbands, uh, maybe your prayers are being hindered because of how you treat your wives. There's this idea of like, oh, prayers can be hindered, it seems. And it seems like Saul's prayers are being greatly hindered. He's not hearing from God. Why? There's still unconfessed sin and unresolved sin. He still hasn't really gone to the Lord with what he needed to. So he wants step two, God, what should I do? But he hasn't done step one. And the day he's like, do step one before you ask for step two. 
And if, you, if you've never listened to the Lord to begin with, why would he start now? So, but here's the thing. What do you do when God does not answer you? When you read this, God does not answer him, and not, not immediately at least, right? He doesn't answer him the way he wants. It's not on his timeline, his schedule. So he immediately goes to a witch at Endor. It's kind of crazy. Like, what do you do when God doesn't speak to you? Because a lot of times we go, oh, not getting anything out of prayer. God's not speaking to me. Maybe I'll just turn on, I don't know. I don't know why I say Dr. Phil. I have no idea. But whatever that thing is, like something that you're like, I'm going to just go to this person, this podcast, this thing, this teacher. I'm going to go to some sort of alternative voice to give me direction here. I'd say when God's not speaking to you, wait. Maybe you need to repent. There's something unconfessed. If I regard iniquity, maybe there's something off. Maybe God's like, hey, I'd love to speak with you, but there's something here that you have not yet confessed. How, again, it's like trying to talk to your, your, your spouse or someone you love or care about, but there's an unresolved issue. And it's like, cool, cool, cool. I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about this thing. There's a giant elephant in the room. Like, let's talk about this. Then we can talk about the next thing. But here's the thing with him. Like, what do you do when God's not speaking? Don't do what Saul did, obviously. He turns to this alternative voice. He turns to this medium. He turns to this woman. Hey, she speaks with the dead. Maybe she can help me. Now, here's what it says about him that he did well. It says Saul put out all the, the mediums and necromancers, those who speak of the dead. He, he kicked them all out of the land. Saul actually did something really good early on in his kingdom, in his time. He kicked them out of the land, but now he's playing the hypocrite because now he's going to them. So he kicked them out, but now he's going to them. Saul did what was necessary. Saul did what the scripture was really clear that he needed to do. You know, I do want to take a second to like kind of talk about this because um, the occult, and not like a cult, but the occult, those that kind of maybe deal with uh, kind of, you could say, the dark spirits, those that deal with um, mediums, witchcraft, Wicca, whatever you want to call it, the occult, I think there is a movement in our day to normalize the occult in our everyday life. And I do want to kind of talk about this because I do feel like it's very appropriate. Let me just say that again. I really think there is a movement to normalize the occult in our everyday life where maybe we don't see it or feel it because we're a first world country and, you know, we think, though, no, this kind of happens in third world countries where they deal with witchcraft and Wicca. No, this is very prevalent in our, in our day, in our time. Now, let me say this. Saul did what was right and necessary. Actually, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18 says this. God says, when you enter the land, the Lord your God, the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you uh, who sacrificed their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who's a medium or spirit, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. So he, Saul knew this. He knew, he knew the Torah. He, he's like, yes, let's kick them out. Actually, in Exodus uh, chapter 22, it says, you shall not permit a sorcerer to live. So actually in this story, you're going to see that she's like fearful. She's kicked out. Saul's the one who did this, and now he's going to her. Now again, I want to be really clear because this is weird. Uh, I was at Barnes & Noble maybe like, I don't know, two months ago with my son. We're walking around Barnes & Noble, and I was honestly like shocked by all the kid books that were like dedicated to like witchcraft, to Wicca. I was like, really? Like, it's, like children, it's like children learning like Wicca. It's like, like a pentagon in the front. You're like, just so, it's like in colorful. It like, it, if you're a little kid, you're like, that looks cool. It was so weird how normalized it was. Just even like next to other books, just like it was very like, it was just very like, come on. This is not strange. This is not weird. This is not bizarre. Like we want to normalize this. There's been some Christians who I've met and spoken with who they've sworn that you should read the Bible and have tarot cards with you and they get more out of it. And we've had to talk to them. And that's like, and that sounds so bizarre when I first heard it too, like you. But like, no, 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 tarot cards in the Bible, that's something we do. And it's sad when you go, man, there's, like a, there's a desire to normalize, I believe, the occult into our everyday life. And we have to be aware of it. You know, just being down here for now 13 years and so cool to see some people saved from Santeria. That's something we've been a part of, been able to see. There's a husband, wife, children that got to see saved out of Santeria. And if you know anything about that, it just, it just really, they just very bizarre. Um, this, this lady that we were spending time with, her dad every night would take on different personas, speak in different voice, and it was just very normal to her. And she would see this and walk through this. And I got to see her repent of, of she practiced Santeria, she made animal sacrifices. There was a lot of that in her background. And I got to see her talk about the power of the Spirit in her and how she sensed a greater power of the Spirit of God in her, a greater peace, more freedom. One, she felt bound by these different spirits. Here, she felt more alive by the Holy Spirit. And you talk to someone who's come out of that, and it's so beautiful. You can see videos on YouTube. There's so many different things you can see or experience. But when you walk through it, you go, oh, this is a very real thing. The spiritual realm or the spiritual world is a very real thing. I think the enemy for us maybe tries to make it like, no, 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 that's not here in the States or that's not a big deal. 
you know, and there's, again, kid books about it. It's trying to be normalized. I think we have to be highly aware of this. I think, God, what does your word say about this? How do we respond? How do we also pray for redemption of these people and not make them, and like, you practice this? And like, how do we actually go, no, no, there's a greater spirit that you have not experienced yet. There's a greater power you've not experienced yet. How do we not completely just throw them out? Or I won't even talk to you or look at you. How do we be like, no, no, no. Like, greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. There's a greater spirit that lives and dwells in us than that you've ever experienced. And that is the power of God. That is the Holy Spirit. We want them to taste and see that spirit, the Holy Spirit, the power of God. We want them to, to know that that is the greatest power or thing they could ever experience in their life. You know, in the New Testament, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. And one of the things, just point out, he says, here, the works of the flesh are evident. And then he goes on to say, dot, 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 sorcery. Now, here's why I'm putting this up. Because you're trying to say, where do we see this in the New Testament? How do we see this play out? Um, we see in the book of Acts, chapter 19, in the city of Ephesus, we see people get saved. And we see them take their books, their books on, it says the books on magic and witchcraft, and they threw them in the fire. When they got saved, they're like, we don't want this lifestyle anymore. They threw them in the fire. There's this great revival. It was amazing what God was doing. You have to understand that there does seem to be obviously some sort of power attached to whether it's mediums, necromancers, whatever you want to call them. There seems to be some sort of power they're getting or experiencing. And let me be clear. Remember in the book of Exodus chapter 8, uh, Moses throws down his rod. Then you have Pharaoh's kind of guards that on their rods and this, they become snakes. But Moses' rod eats their snakes. Like there's some sort of power there. There's some sort of darkness there that seems to have some sort of weight and power. But at the same time, we do not need to fear that because we do see that there's a greater power. You know, I, I loved it. When we went to Haiti, we spent some time with the missionaries there. And we were just talking, like, in their everyday life, um, they encounter almost on a daily basis different issues with, like, the voodoo chief of their kind of uh, city. And we're just talking about this. Like, yeah, that guy, like, like remember when I pointed him out? That guy lives there. Uh, he tries to walk around our missionary area and, like, cast spells on us, but he can't. And I'm like, what do you mean he can't? So we started talking about this. And I loved it. They're like, you know what? Uh, and not to overwhelm you or freak you out, this is to hopefully bring you hope. They're like, you know what? We know that they'll try to get people's hair and perform different kind of spells or connotations on it. Like, so uh, we know they do this. Um, and I said, what would you do if they ever got a hold of your hair? They go, nothing. I'm like, why? They're like, this is Jesus' hair. They can't touch me. And I remember, I'm like, what do you mean? And they go, no, no, we know they've tried. Like, we know that people will pay them to, to kind of do, cast different spells on people. And we've seen how that's played out. But when they do it to Christians, nothing happens. And I'm like, why? Because like, we have Jesus here. And, you know, and hearing that response, like, wow, that's so beautiful. The point of this is not to freak anyone out or overwhelm anyone. It's going, hey, Christians, I don't know if we realize that you and I do engage in a spiritual war. Like we clearly do. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. The idea, that's why prayer is so profound. Prayer is something like, man, you want to engage in just the divine prayer. You want to kind of engage in the things unseen prayer. There's something about that. There's something where people want to feel connected to a higher power. They also want to know the, the future. They want all these things. And it's like, man, you're, you want something. Can I, can I show you a better something? And we're trying to introduce them to a better, better power. That is, the, again, the Holy Spirit. My point of bringing all this up is not to cause fear, but there obviously seems to be some sort of connection, this witch of Endor. Okay, let me hear from her. It's crazy because this is the first thing. He desperately wanted to hear from God. He doesn't, so he turns to this alternative voice. And we can't make the same mistake of, well, I'm not hearing from God, so let me go somewhere else. Well, I'm not hearing from God, so let me go here. You'd say, no, no, double down on that. If you're not hearing from God, God, why am I not? Why does it feel like my, my prayers are hitting the ceiling? Like, why does it feel like it's going nowhere? I mean, like, do, do some sort of like self-internal examination. Like, Lord, I want to hear from you. I, I want to receive from you. What is, maybe there's unconfessed, I need to confess. Maybe I'm asking for step two or three, but I need to go back to step one. Like, what's going on? I'd say we see this very, very clearly. I'll keep moving on, but we'll kind of see the story play out more. Verse 8. Verse 8. It says, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, uh, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. This is Saul. You know what Saul has done? How he has cast or how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, using the Lord's name in this moment, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, 
She cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, what, what, or why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? So he didn't see him. The woman said to Saul, I see God coming up from the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Before we move on, before we just keep moving on from this, I, this is such an interesting dynamic. This raises up a lot of questions. People go, did she really see uh, Saul or Samuel? Did she really see him? Uh, why does it seem to work? How, what, what's going on here exactly? Before we kind of get into all of those questions, I want you to see, again, something that Sam, Saul did is he went against, obviously, what he pronounced, that there should be no mediums in the land. Listen to this, Leviticus 20, verse 6. It says, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. So this is what Saul's doing. And we know this, when she saw Samuel, verse 12, it says she cried out with a loud voice. The idea is like, she's obviously surprised. She didn't expect to see Samuel. There's an element to this where she's like, ah, Samuel, wait, I know who you are, you're Saul. Why would you do this? Now, again, there's a question. Did she really see Samuel? Or is this a spirit maybe disguised itself? There's been kind of like a debate uh, amongst a lot of people who study this and go, I think that she really saw uh, Samuel. Some say, no, she just saw, she's actually interacting with a demon who's appearing to be like Samuel. I will say I lean towards that she really saw Samuel in this moment. Like she really saw him. And she's freaked out. This is the prophet of God. I mean, this is, this is the guy when we read the story, like he did some amazing, powerful things. She's seen him. She's kind of freaked out. What is going on here? Why have you done this? Why have you called me to call him? Now it's like, wait, can she call whoever she wants? Is that, can, they, can mediums call up the dead? How does this work exactly? Let me just kind of share a couple of thoughts. I really do believe she saw Samuel. Uh, and now, let me explain. Not because of her power, not because she's so great, but because God's about to pronounce judgment through Samuel to Saul. And I think God is, in, in spite of her, allowing this to happen. Let me put it this way. I like how Warren Wearsby laid out. He's like, I think this is Samuel. Why? He says, Samuel's coming was of the Lord and not because of the witch's art. Uh, why? The witch was surprised when Samuel appeared. Samuel came because he had a special message for the king from the Lord. The witch becomes a mere spectator once Samuel's on the scene, meaning we're going to see Saul and Samuel having this conversation. Like she's like left out of it. So the idea is like, who did she see? It seems that she really saw Samuel. Now, why? Well, probably because the Lord had a special judgment to place on him. Uh, one author, Clark, says this, I believe Samuel did actually appear to Saul and that he was sent by the special uh, mercy of God to warn this infatuated king of his approaching death, that he might have an opportunity to make his peace with his maker. You know, there's gonna be a judgment placed upon him, but you're gonna read, it's like, ugh, there seems to be like this judgment placed upon him and he still had a chance to repent, but instead he goes and eats a meal. And it's so sad. He had an opportunity to repent, but he doesn't. I like what G. Campbell Morgan says. He says, um, that he did appear to Saul, there can be no question, but he did not come in response to her call. He was sent of God for the express purpose of rebuking Saul for his unholy traffic with these evil things and to pronounce his doom. So it's divided. There's a lot of people who say, hey, he actually really did appear. Some who say he didn't. There's a guy I like. His name is J. Vernon McGee, old school guy. He says, no, this was not Samuel. Let me just put his quote up here just so you can kind of see the debate. He says, I believe it was an impersonation by a false spirit rather than Samuel who appeared. God no longer spoke to Saul. Uh, worse still, Saul no longer spoke to God. The dead cannot communicate with the living. This was satanic from the beginning to end. So some say this was Samuel. Some say it's not. I do lean and say that she saw uh, Samuel. She saw him. And he has this message for her. Now, I guess why to bring this all up? Um, we're looking at this because there's an element where he recognizes the power of this. I can't hear from God, so let me go to this woman. I want to hear something. I'm just desperate for something. Saul's, Samuel's going to tell Saul what he already knew. Samuel's going to tell Saul everything he already told him. There's going to be no new information given to him. But it's interesting to me. He's just desperate to hear something. He'll do anything. Um, you know, it's interesting. We got a phone call one time as a church. My, we have a church phone number. Got a phone call from this Muslim family. And they called and said, hey, we want to sh kind of share something we're walking through. This might sound bizarre to you. I asked them how you got our number. They said, there's this military guy that used, he's a Christian. He used to pray with us. And he recommended your church. And so I just wanted, we, they called us. So long story short, this Muslim family calls us and says, hey, we went on a trip to Iran. We uh, met with like this medium. They gave us this like vase or vase or whatever. We bring it to our house. Ever since then, we've been seeing things, hearing things, and we're calling the Christians. I'm like, why are you calling a Christian? 
Um, they go, because last time this happened and we experienced these things in our home, we called a Christian and we saw a period of time of just peace. We didn't see these things, hear these things. My son didn't act this way. And we wanted to call the Christians again. So I said, explain more. And so they explained to me about this military family who would come and just pray with them, pray over them, and there'd be peace in their home. So they get this, we get this call and saying, hey, some weird things are happening in your home. Will you come over and pray with us? And so I'm like, yeah, let me bring silver. I brought silver with me, if you know. Um, it's so cool. <laughs> but we, we go... We go to this house, you know, and we just sit with the family. And we like listen to them. They're like, "Yep." Went to I was like, "So when did this start?" We went to Iran. We brought this little relic thing back with us, and I think at that point in time, you might remember, but um, they got rid of it or they didn't get rid of it. But we're just like listening to them talk. And I said, "Well, why? Why do you think? Why do you think that um, there's power in the name of Jesus? Like, why don't? Why don't you call upon Muhammad?" And we, we were having this conversation. I'm like, well, there just seems to be power in the name of Jesus, specifically in this way. And I go, "Well, well, like, let's talk about who Jesus is. I want you to know who Jesus is." And I said, "Jesus is not not just a prophet." Like, yes, Deuteronomy 18, like, he is a prophet, but he's more than that. He is the son of God. He, he, is, he, is, he has no beginning, no end. He's not a created being. And we just like, let me just talk about Jesus for a while. And I don't know if they're just nodding their head. Like, they believe that. I don't think they did, but it's just more like, okay, well, out of respect, listen to you. And I'm like, so we're going to pray to that Jesus. You know, I just want to be really clear. And so we came in the name of Jesus, prayed over their home. Um, you know, it's one of those bizarre mirrors. Like, if you guys want to be on the next phone call with me, come on. Um, it's just one of those bizarre things. And we're praying over their home. We just asked if we can walk around each room and pray over the rooms. And it was so cool. We're walking around these rooms and they had Bibles open. Not Qurans open, they had Bibles open. And I just like, hey, there's three Bibles. I'm like, why do you have a Bible open in every room? It's like, well, the Christians we were talking to said to open up the Bible. And I'm like, well, why is that on Luke 8? And they're like, well, I don't know. They told us to open up to Luke 8. And it was so cool because I'm like, well, do you know that this Sunday I'm teaching on the parable of the sower from Mark chapter 4. So on Luke 8, it said parable of the sower, Luke chapter 8. All the Bibles. I'm like, so you open up to the parable of the sower. Why? I don't know. They said to. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm preaching on that this Sunday, like this story. And I'm like, do you know what the parable of the sower is? They're like, no. And so I just briefly explain, you know, a, a farmer went out to sow some seed. The seed is the word of God. When it takes like, root, when it actually is in good soil, it produces fruit. Sometimes the seed doesn't do any good because it didn't have good soil. And it's like, the idea is like, do you hear that the word of God wants to get in you? That's like the idea. The word of God wants to get in you and produce fruit, produce life. Like, oh, that's cool. I'm like, no, no. Like, do you get it? Like your Bibles are, it's one of the coolest things. Now, um, during that time, we talked with them for a couple months after, and we're like, we haven't had any incidents since then. Thank you so much. One of them came to our Christmas service a couple years ago. We did lose communication with them. But the bizarre thing to me was they sensed there is a power in this home, but for some reason in the past experiences, there's been a greater power in the person of Jesus. Let's seek out Christians. And it's such a beautiful thing, and I I hope and wish and still pray that it can and will lead to their salvation. I have no idea. But here's the thing. We see this story, and sometimes we're like, man, there seems to be power with this woman. Does she have power to reach the the dead? And here's what we'll say. Um, I don't believe that you can really speak to the dead. I do believe, for the most part, you will speak to an impersonation of the dead. I do believe that, as Hebrews 9 says, it's appointed unto men to die once in judgment. I don't believe that anyone, so maybe she's a charlatan. Maybe she's faking this. Maybe modern day. Like, but I know people who can speak to the dead. I would say they're actually not speaking to that person. They're probably speaking to a demonic spirit that either was aware or knew of that person. Um, so I just want to be clear, because it doesn't seem like this is not a rule. Like, she seemed to speak to Samuel, but why I'm telling this whole story is it doesn't seem to rule that you can speak to the dead as much as God allowed in this moment and in this instance to speak to Samuel for the sake of judgment. That this is also not a common thing. That, and you're like, why do you believe you, that you're not speaking to the dead? Because I do believe it's appointed unto men to die once, then judgment. I don't believe anyone's coming up to speak again. Um, and I want to be clear with that because I think that there's almost like deception around that, that talk or that thought. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, I won't get into it too much, talks about people who sacrifice meat to idols. And, and really what Paul is saying is like, no, no, you're not, it's not about you and idols and meat. That's not the thing. There are actually demonic spirits behind those things. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, I'll put the verse up here. He says, why do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participation. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And that's the idea behind this. It's like, don't participate in this. So the reason why I'm saying this, we have no place for any of these things in the Christian life. When it comes to seances, Ouija boards, tarot cards, speaking to some sort of palm reader, there's no room for this in our life. I I hope you guys know that. We actually also have power that is so great that causes those magicians to throw their books in the fire and say, give us your book right? There's something so much greater than the power of God, where they, they're Muslims calling on Christians saying, will you pray for us? We have something so much better and more powerful. 
Sometimes we read these stories or hear these things and we can get freaked out rather than saying, but there's a greater power. And this lesser power has to submit to that greater power. And we constantly saw that in the ministry and life of Jesus, where they constantly had to submit to the greater power. And I, I want us to see this and know this because it's so sad to me that I'm seeing kind of within our younger generations this normal, normalization of, I'd say, pursuing kind of this thing or even like this might introduce DMT or psychedelic drugs or mushrooms that take us to these different experiences and you're interacting and people don't know what kind of language to use. And I'd say it, whether or not they have the right language, they're, demo- they're engaging with a demonic spiritual world that we are not to engage with, that we can engage with the power of God through prayer, but we're not to engage engage in that. And I actually do feel like this is a lot because we're going to see more and more younger generations being like, but mushrooms and DMT, they're having these awesome trips and they have people lead them and they have shamans and this is so cool. And we have to be aware and say, no, no, we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We go to him, we seek him. We're not going to engage in this. We're not going to participate. I'm open to like a longer wait here conversation because there are many people I'm seeing this more and more and I get it. They're a great podcast that promote these things, but it's only going to do more and more harm and lead you down a path that is anti the path in the way of Jesus. And so I want us to just be aware of this. Yes. Um, moving on. He wanted a word, but he did not hear from God. The wicked don't hear from God. And number two is this. The wicked don't experience God. Look at verse 15. Same story. Keep going. Verse 15. It says, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warned against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, here he says, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. You're going to die. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Here's what I want to point out in this text really quick, because he says it in verse 15, and then uh, Samuel actually repeats it. He desperately actually like, misses God, I believe. Here's why. Look at verse 15. It says, this is what Saul says, God has turned away from me and answers me no more. He's like, I don't sense God. He's turned away from me. And he even says this, Samuel says this, yeah, God has turned away from me. He's now your enemy. There's a sense of like, I missed that connection. I wanted to experience God. I don't experience God anymore. God's turned away from me. He doesn't hear from God. He doesn't experience God. And then here's the interesting thing. Samuel gives Saul no new information. There's nothing new. Do you remember the last time they they had a conversation? Saul actually disobeys God. Samuel has to do what Saul wasn't willing to do. And basically Saul or Samuel says to Saul, God's going to tear apart the kingdom from you. It's over. It's going to David. The kingdom is done. Your kingdom is, it's, it's over. And there's the same thing being said. Isn't it funny that sometimes we'll try to go to God to get like a different message than he already told us or gave us? Like, okay, maybe God has changed his mind. Isn't that funny? Um, I'll say this, time doesn't change God's mind. I'd say repentance does seem to. There is this idea, and I'll show some verses on that. There is this idea that like actually repentance, not that it changes God's mind, but God works in a way where he says, if you're willing to repent, I will also relent. There's this idea of like, when we repent, God relents. We'll look at that in a second. But I don't want to move on from this. He's going to God saying, God, I hope you give me a different answer this time. It's funny, we can't, we can't do that. If you've ever gone to God, if you've ever, if you've ever heard from God, God spoke to you through his word. God spoke to Saul or to Samuel very clearly. And Saul's just repeating, he's like, you know this. The kingdom's leaving you. It's done. It's over. You didn't obey God. And he's like, well, let me find a way to go back to him. And it's like, did God change his mind? No. See, time didn't change God's mind. There has to be this change in us. So when I say, if you repent, God will relent. Let me just throw some verses up here. Uh, it's Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 8. It says, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. God says, return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. There is this idea, like if you're willing to repent, I will turn away. I will relent, he says. And so this idea that God sets it up, like, don't you get it? I'm, I'm asking you, I'm inviting you into repentance. But he still is not doing that. He hears this crippling message. You're going to die. Your sons are going to die tomorrow. You're going to die. 
and he still doesn't repent. You're actually going to go see him in a second, just eat a meal, he, but he misses the point. I love what uh, G. Campbell Morgan said. He says, God never departs from a man until the man has departed from him. Then in the interest of righteousness, God is against that man. This is kind of what sets up uh, Saul. He turned from God. He's not hearing from God. He misses that. He wants a different message. He's not going to get a different message. You're not going to get a different message. If God has spoken to you once and you haven't done that thing, it's not going to like, okay, all right, you waited a little bit, so I'll change my mind. It's like, no, no, there's not repentance happening there. You know, it's actually really interesting. Samuel said to Saul earlier, just I have to point this out in chapter 15, when he didn't obey God, he said this to Saul. He says, rebellion is as the sin of divination. It's really, this is such a weird phrase that maybe Nate spoke during that message in 1 Samuel 15. Maybe you didn't even notice it. But when Saul disobeys God, Samuel's like, do you not know that sin and the rebellion is this, as the sin of divination? He's saying, and that's such a weird thing. He's saying, those who seek to speak to the dead, divination. That rebellion is the same as that. It's the same as witchcraft. Rebellion, he said, is the same as witchcraft. And you're like, why would he say that? And then here you see him later seeking witchcraft to hear from God. He's like, you've already been on this route. It's these little compromises, not obeying, not listening, not following God that has led you down this path of rebellion. It's led you to this moment here. Moving on from this, I want to be really clear. Verse 20, let's keep reading. Here's what happens next. So he gets this terrible message. He's going to die. His sons are going to die. It says verse 20, it makes sense. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, just spread out on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, this witch, and she said, when she saw, and when the woman came to Saul, when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. And Saul refused and said, I will not eat. But a servant together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. He listened to them. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. You're like, what's the significance of this? No, it's interesting. I really feel like he was at this place where he's about to repent. He just spread out on the ground. And this woman comes and goes, you need to eat a meal. Like he's fasting, he's broken, and it, it turns from like, maybe, maybe he will repent to like, let's bring it back to the physical and you should eat. And it's so sad to me how sometimes I feel like people are on the, like the edge of like repentance. And then there's this moment where someone kind of brings it back into like the carnal, the physical, like, yeah, you should eat. Get your, get your mind off it. Get your mind off it. Just eat some food. And I just feel like, oh, he was so close, I think, to repentance. The significance of this portion is a lot of people talk about this meal seems to be more than a meal. It actually seems to be a covenant he's making with this woman. She's killing a fatted calf. She's doing some like, significant meal for him. It seems to be like a covenantial meal now that he's making with this woman. That's kind of the significance. But it's like he's on the verge of almost repenting and yet doesn't. I love what J.D. Greer says. He says, the answer to Saul's problem, listen, was not to be found in a magical ceremony, but in the much more obvious and much more difficult path of repentance. Like, what was, the, what was the solution to all this? Not eating a meal, not seeing the switch. Just if you just repented. If you just repented, you, you might have experienced the goodness and the grace of God. Like, but he misses it. He misses every chance. See, the wicked, the wicked they don't experience God. And in fact, he just experienced a meal with his enemies. Number three is this. Um, the wicked, they don't finish well. So look at chapter 31. Turn the page, chapter 31. You're going to die. That's what they say. Chapter 31. I just want to end with this story. So encouraging this Sunday morning. God, yeah, I love you guys. Oh, man. Chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. Listen to this. Here's the story. Here's what Samuel said to Saul. They're fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul, and the battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers, listen, the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, he says, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. 
And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came, and they lived in them. They took their homes. Verse 8. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idol and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. <sighs> Such a beautiful, good news Sunday. Um, here's what I say. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. This is such a tragic ending that did not need to happen to Saul. Now, there's a few key things that are really fascinating about this story. Obviously, the archers wound him. He's like, armor bearer, kill me. He won't kill him. I won't do it. He falls on his own sword. He takes his own life. Some are saying, look at David didn't take the kingdom. The enemy didn't take his kingdom. God, Saul had to basically give up his kingdom. It, it's sad that it goes down this way. The enemies come. They cut off his head. They take his armor. They're just, they're basically reveling in the fact that, look, Saul is dead. They're rejoicing. They're looking at his stuff. They're looking at his body, painting it to the wall, his sons to the wall. Obviously, your heart can't read this and not just grieve for Jonathan, who is so, such a good friend of David, who is such a beautiful character in the scriptures. You're like, oh, Jonathan. And also crazy, the fact that he's loyal to David and to his dad. It's unbelievable, this guy, to me. But when you're reading this story and you're going, man, it seems like the enemy is one. It seems like all hope is lost. Next chapter we're going to see in, in 2 Samuel 1, two days, three days later, David gets the news. David's going to be anointed king, and the new king takes over and rules and reigns. Now David's going to break. He's going to weep and grieve for Saul's death. He's broken over Saul's death. He's not happy by this news. He's devastated by the news. But when you read this story, it kind of brings up some imagery, and I just want to kind of briefly go through that, because this is so important. Listen, there was such hope for Saul to be the king that they've always wanted and looked up to. Saul was the Mashiach. That means the anointed one. Saul was, and that's the Hebrew word for like the anointed one, right? That's the same word we use for Messiah. Not that he was the Messiah, don't get me wrong, but he was the Mashiach. He was the first, he's the anointed one, the anointed king. He's the anointed king that they had such great hope for. And he dies on this hill. And see, he's an anti-type of Jesus in many ways. Here's what I would say. Jesus is the anti-Saul. Meaning a thousand years later, there would be another Mashiach, another anointed one who would die on a hill. And see, and just like in Saul's death, you think about it. They cut off his head. They take his armor. They pin it to the wall. They're celebrating the reverend. Like they're happy. Yes, we killed him. We killed the king. They made a mockery of Saul. They made absolute mockery of him. But here's what we're told in Colossians 2, that on the cross, Jesus made a mockery of the enemy. See, Jesus too was mocked on the cross. Was he not spat at? Did they not curse him, spit on him, beat him, strike him, put a thing to his mouth that was not a good thing? It was disgusting. They treated him terribly on the cross. They made a mockery of Jesus at his death on, on that hill. But it, in, at the same time, at the same time, Jesus made a mockery of them. Colossians 2.15 says uh, that he nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I love this because they're mocking him. They're reveling in the fact that, look, we killed Saul. They're making him a public spectacle. And Jesus is like, I'm going to undo this. I, at my hill, I, I'm going to make a public spectacle of the enemy. I'm going to show them that being nailed to the cross, what seemed tragic, is actually be the most life-giving thing on earth. You see, you think about it. Remember in Luke 24, the disciples on the road to Emmaus? It says in Luke 24, 31, it says, uh, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They're walking on this road going, oh, we hope that Jesus would have been the Messiah. The people are going, oh, we hope that Saul would have been that, that king to save us. There was like this, sad, this kind of sad spirit to them. They fleed. They left their homes. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're on their way to Emmaus. You see these similarities like, oh, we're, he's not who we thought he was. But little did they know that his death would bring life. Little did they know that like, yes, just like Saul, it seemed tragic. It seemed like the end. But in reality, that's where Jesus made a public spectacle of principalities and powers, it says. I love that phrase in Colossians 2. Saul was mocked. His body hangs. They're celebrating the fact that Jesus on the cross is going to look at the enemy. You lost. You lost. I can make a public spectacle of you now. You think you won, but you lost. And Jesus is that anti-Saul. <laughs> or Saul is the anti-Jesus. It's like, let me show you this parallel of a hill, of a mountain where someone dies. We think all hope is lost, when in reality, all hope has won. 
that Jesus is risen. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King we've always wanted. It seems similar, tragic in the ending, but little did they know it also brought life. Listen, what I love about this again was when David finds out about Saul's death, it says this in Proverbs 24. He says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. And this is David's response. He's not rejoicing, he's heartbroken. He's not celebrating, he's weeping. And the point of David is David shows us how, like Jesus on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He shows us how to love our enemies. Like think about this, David loved the one who hated him, the one who tried to murder him. David weeps over him, writes a song about him, David loved his enemy well. And it, just, it shows us like there will be a greater David that will also love his enemy well. There'll be a greater David who will say, you know what, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. G- David loved his enemy, but obviously Jesus loved his enemies so much more. Jesus is that greater than David. Here's the thing. I just want to end. It's weird. When we're reading through these, these books, we come now to 2 Samuel. We're going to pick back, up, pick back up in 2 Samuel chapter 2 next week. When we read these stories, it's to create a longing of like, why does it seem so tragic? Why does David seem so hopeful? It's setting our hearts up for the same story. There will be another one. There will be another one who will die a tragic death on a hill. But his tragic death will lead to life. He was made a spectacle, Saul, but Jesus will make a public spectacle of his enemies. And it creates this, yes, Lord, I need you. I look to you. I long for you. Let's just do this. Can we just close our time? Can you bow your heads, close your eyes? Can we just pray? Go to the Lord. This is one of those stories where I go, Lord, I have no idea how to honestly teach through this. This is so heavy. But I'm just very thankful. This tragic ending with Saul is a comedy in a sense with Jesus. By comedy, if you know those phrases, means it ends joyfully. What seemed tragic, the cross, leads to our joy today. That Jesus on a hill died for you and me a sacrificial death. A death. He gave his life for us so that you and I could live. And we just want to say thank you, Jesus. If you want to come up, we're just going to pray. Father, we thank you so much that we get to read a story that's heavy, that's sad, that's tragic in its ending. And yet with you, Jesus, you can make tragic stories beautiful. That you remind us of a greater hill Calvary, where you died for us, where you took our sin, our shame. God, where you made a public spectacle of the enemy. You disarmed principalities and powers. It says, having nailed it to the cross, you took our sin, our shame, our guilt, and you nailed it and says, it's there, it's done, it's forgiven. That we can now look to you, seek you. And Jesus, we just ask God, as we now move into the life of David, that you would continue, Lord, just to reveal who you are to us, how you move, how you act. God, that this would not just be old stories that don't have meaning for us today, but we would learn, Jesus, that we would seek you, that when we don't hear from you, that we would not turn to alternative voices, but just to you, Lord. God, we thank you that you are near, that you are with us, that you've promised to be with us, and we just want to say thank you, Lord. So, Jesus, we just want to sing to you now and worship you now in your precious name. Amen.